Welcome to Out in the Bay Queer Radio. I'm Eric Jansen, a.k.a. Canella. Burning Man is underway. It wraps up Labor Day weekend. What's all the fuss about Burning Man? And what's queer about it? From the Wayback Machine, we get some answers from my 2014 conversation with a few influential diehard burners. Every August, more and more Bay Area residents and folks from around the world now trek to a remote desert in Nevada for a week of art, partying, and more. Burning Man is roughly a quarter century old, depending on what you consider its birth, and it's grown immensely. So I figured it's about time we brought you something, dear listeners, to have an idea what goes on there and how queer it is or can be. And it just so happens that Fresh Off the Presses is a gorgeous new book featuring the art of Burning Man. It's called Burning Man Art on Fire, and its author and one of the two photographers are here with me in Out in the Bay Studios. We also have a past mayor of Camp Beaverton, one of the camps in Burning Man's gayborhood. Jennifer Reiser, also known as Coco on the playa, is a writer, strategist, business leader, and burner who has written for the San Francisco Chronicle, Huffington Post, Harvard Business School, and her online magazine, sfwire.com. She's on the board of the Burning Man Project, volunteers as a ranger at Burning Man, and welcomes burners to board the Casbus on the playa. We'll get into playa terms in a bit. Jennifer Reiser, welcome to Out in the Bay. Great to be here. Photographer Sidney Ertal, known for his spontaneous portraiture, has spent the last decade engaging with and photographing the people and phenomenon of Burning Man. He works with the documentary team that welcomes journalists covering Burning Man in Nevada. Sydney, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And Foxy, who has only given us her playa name tonight, uh, was a mayor of Burning Man's Camp Beaverton in 2012 and 2013. She describes Camp Beaverton as an intentional, experimental, and experiential Burning Man community theme camp with the goal of providing safe space for queer women on and off the playa. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Foxy, thanks for being here. Thanks you all for being here. First of all, uh, Jennifer and Sydney, I really want to congratulate you on your book. It's really beautiful. It's, you know, it's just stunning. It's full of information about Burning Man, and these um, photographs are just powerful and uh, and beautiful. Um, so you must be quite proud and pleased. It's exciting to see it in in the world that's not on the playa. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the kind of book that one can pick up and go, okay, now I have an idea of what all the fuss is about. I just happened to be just happened to flip open to this photograph of the um Polpo Mechanico, which is a uh, octopus a flaming uh, with flames coming out of all different places, it's pretty much impossible to describe. But it's uh, a big concoction on wheels. And, you know, how tall would you say this thing is? El Popo's probably 35 feet tall. But the amazing thing is that it's made entirely out of scrap and garbage. The man who designed it, Dwayne, um, is an incredible and resourceful graphic designer who trolls through dumpster dives and and figures out how to create beautiful things out of stuff no one else wants. He's amazing. It is, and it's like, and you sit there and you watch it. So I'll just let you know, I went once two years ago. I might go back. (laughs) I'm not a convert. I'm not a burner yet. Um, So I'll just say, so like I said, the book gives you an idea of what all the fuss is about. And because I know a lot of people have been intrigued by Burning Man, 
They hear everyone else talking about it, but they wonder, is it really worth a week of camping in the Nevada desert, battling cold at night, daytime temperatures of 90, 100 degrees and more, and dust, this alkali dust that gets into everything, sometimes kicked up by the wind so badly it's like a blizzard, but a blizzard of, you know, it's not snow. You don't want to breathe this stuff, really. So um, you're all the diehards. Why? Why do you do it? Foxy's laughing. Tell, tell me. Oh, God. I mean, there's just so many reasons. It's um, the community, the art, the, the dust, actually, and the way that your hair is the most amazing it will ever be. <laughs> um, and everyone's just beautiful. They are radiant and glowing, and it's, it's breathtaking, um, mind-numbing in the best way, and uh, it's just glorious. You just have to go to really experience how far you can go and uh, come back again. When you say how far you could go, what do you mean? Usually you have a breakdown about Wednesday, <laughs> about the, the middle of the week, and it really does teach you some things about yourself and perhaps what you were looking for that you didn't even know that you were looking for. And hopefully you'll have community around you that can hold space for you so you can find out where it is you're going to be going when you leave the playa. And um, it's a real big gift that the desert can give to you. It, it can break you down and then it can build you back up again. Uh, uh, Sydney or um, or uh, Jennifer, any additional thoughts you want to add to that? Well, Burning Man sometimes called an experiment in intentional community. And what it does is give permission for people to be their authentic selves. That's a little bit of why people love playa names, because they don't have to be the venture capitalist, the banker, the teacher, the mom. They can be whoever they imagine themselves to be. And what's so interesting is once you live for a week like that, you realize you actually should be living your life like that. And it really has a transformative effect on a lot of people. It's a, it's a permission engine. So let's just uh, terminology here. You said the playa. Um, the playa is this big, It's the, the desert is a old lake bed um you know better than i do how big it is tell tell me how big it is well the fence that surrounds it is nine miles long not that surrounds burning man in, in a pentagram shape and then the city is in a semicircle and it's about five and a half square miles mm. what's so interesting is that it's only for walking or biking and for vehicles that have been radically altered into art. They're called mutant vehicles. So it's a city that's set up for people to communicate with each other in old-fashioned ways, like speaking, not texting. Mm-hmm. Wow. What a, that's a radical concept. And yet I, I've heard that cell phone reception is uh, improving, if you like that thing there. It's it's varied, and I hope personally, I hope it stays away because I love the idea of having to actually leave notes for people and relate to them and and remember how our lives used to be before we were chained by electronics and staring at screens all the time. Anyway, so we've got a little bit of field, but um, so you have a section you're going to read, Jennifer, from from about sort of describing the the playa conditions and experience. A trip to Mars, or at least a trip. Describing the experience of Black Rock City can be difficult. Participants must bring everything they need to survive. Water, food, shelter. Basic infrastructure of portable toilets and emergency medical services are provided. 
A phalanx of volunteers provides an array of organized services. Participants, because there is an explicit prohibition against spectators, share gifts of time and resources. Aside from the sale of cooler ice and coffee, commerce and barter are prohibited. There are no trash cans. A strict leave-no-trace ethos is peer-enforced so that every individual is responsible for removing every sequin and taking it home. Variously described as a summer camp for adults, an annual restart button for a complicated life, and the cheapest trip to Mars you'll ever take, the experience is almost entirely self-directed. Participants choose their diversions, pleasures, even their waking hours, although at Burning Man, the greatest delights are often those which opportunistically choose you. Enormous sound camps with suspended DJ booths spin electronic music in a trance of dance. Bars offer every possible permutation of mojitos or absinthe or bacon bloody marys. Sanitation, satiation, sorry, can be found at the midnight popcorn stand, a roving grilled cheese diner, a ramen noodle pagoda, and pancake palaces galore. If you want your chakras tuned, your spine aligned, your dusty hair washed, you'll find what you seek with some effort and a bit of luck. The What, Where, When guide lists lectures, classes, craft workshops, and dance lessons, family-friendly and adult-only establishments offering everything you can imagine and much that you have not. All of it is gifted by participants without expectation of return. There's never time nor energy to see or do it all. There's too much dust, distance, distraction. Participants discover their favorite pieces of art and return to them over the course of the week, visiting at different times of the day and night, in different light, in a different mood. Often a particular piece becomes an individual talisman, one that marks a state of mind or stage of life. Art in Black Rock City offers bittersweet delight, because it will never be in this place in the same way again. But the brevity compels the desire to memorize the contours of it and freeze an image of what looks li- what it looks like at the magic hour when the sun just dips beneath the mountains in the high rock desert of Nevada on the last day of August. Thank you. That's Jennifer Reiser reading from Burning Man, Art on Fire. You're listening to Out in the Bay. I'm here with Jennifer and with Sidney Ertal, who is the photographer, one of the two photographers for this book, and with Foxy, past mayor of Camp Beaverton. You're hearing a conversation first aired in 2014. Though Burning Man continues to grow and evolve, much remains as it was then. The third edition of the book Burning Man Art on Fire was published in July 2023 with 150 new photographs. Learn more in the post for this episode on our website, outinthebay.org, where you could also make a donation. We'd appreciate it. Now, back to 2014. Sydney. Tell us about the process of taking the photos for this book. You and the other photographer, Scott London, how did you split up the work, for example, first of all, and, and um, over how long of a period were all these photos taken? Well, we have about 10 years of Burning Man, um, and we basically we went through all our files from every single picture, see what we could use, and separating by categories that Jennifer created, and uh, it was like... Uh, hundreds of hours of uh, looking, digging into pictures and finding things we didn't even know we had it, actually. At least I didn't. <laughs> so it was it was an interesting process. It was it was beautiful. We, we, we somehow got tired of our images, but they're there and people love it. <laughs> um, and uh, so I would like actually all three of you to tell me a little bit about what brought you to the playa in the first place. 
Um, who wants to start? Sydney, we're just talking to you. Let's start with you, and then we'll just go around the room. <laughs> Um, the same friend who gave me my first camera, actually, he brought me to Burning Man after I was told about Burning Man a year before, in 2004. And I had no idea what it was. I read the survival guide, and uh, I went to the playa, and I was welcomed by a dust storm. And I just started crying, and I want to go back home right mm-hmm. away. You thought it was a dust storm when, as soon as you got there? Is that what you're saying? I, I was hit by a dust storm, like, in the next, like, the first, like, hour or so. Mm-hmm. Went out, and I got scared. I cried. I wanted to go back home, not realize that I was home. And uh, I haven't stopped going since 2005, so it's been 10 years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Foxy, what about you? A friend of mine uh, said, you've got to come to Burning Man. And I was like, well, I can't because I'm going to Dinah Shore, and I couldn't do both. And Dinah I went, Shore being the big uh, yeah, it's golf the, tournament, lesbian, lesbian confab uh, down at Palm Springs. Circuit party, yeah. <laughs> the lesbian version of a white party. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so I went to Dinah Shore, and it just wasn't my cup of tea. I just, I really wasn't finding my tribe. So the next year, I took her up on the offer to go. And I went, and I found my tribe. So that was... This is my fifth burn, so that was five five years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how did you happen to become so involved with Camp Beaverton that you became uh, the mayor? Uh, <laughs> how big of a camp is this, by the way? We've we've got almost twenty five people this year, so it fluctuates between you know nineteen twenty five. So this is the biggest it's been, which is wonderful. Um, and all my friends are in it, so I was basically dropped into the middle of Camp Beaverton, and they needed a leader, and so I decided to do it and improve my leadership skills and whatnot. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Coco, if I can use your ply name, what about you? I was fortunate enough to have a dear friend from high school and college. And I think I know him. He's a, he's a swell <laughs> guy. And my brother uh, collaborate and decide that it was time for me to go to Burning Man nine years ago. And so they just said, show up with some costumes. And I had no clue what I was getting into. And I showed up with some costumes. I was not self-reliant at that point. Um, but I was dazzled and, and absolutely hooked. The minute I got there, it felt like home to me as well. I was so impressed with how open people were. I loved the the way people presented themselves in in all their many forms. There was just this incredible warmth and inclusion. I love the idea of gifting. I love the idea of not having to worry about money. Um, and and I can't can't stay away. So my year starts when when Burning Man starts, and it ends uh, a year later. Yeah, that's right. And then three days after the thing, you start planning the following year, right? So it seems to consume your life almost in a way if you're really, really into it. Yes, it certainly does. Yeah. Probably planning starts maybe a month afterwards and then like after the burn, you know, and then it goes on all year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, a couple things, dust storms. Uh, let's talk about those because, Sydney, you mentioned uh, showing up and the dust storm was... You know, hit you as soon as you got there. And we, I heard about them before I went, and I had a fairly tame year as far as dust storms go. It was two years ago, and so it wasn't anything terrible. But um, what's that like? You've all been through them? What? Well, last year we had phenomenal amounts of rain all the way and up to the Burning Man event. Um, so the playa actually didn't have a lot of dust, but you absolutely never know. Part of it is because this is is alkaline and it's gypsum, like what they make sheetrock out of. So it's very, very fine particulate. And once it starts blowing, there's no stopping it. So your best bet is to have a really good mask and a great set of goggles and real patience and acceptance that the world is much, much bigger than anything you can control. You just have to roll with it. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned a moment ago um, the gift economy. What's that? That's something that's 
unusual I don't know if it's unique in the world, but it's unusual. One of the, one of the traits of Burning Man. Tell us a little bit about more about that. Well, it can happen just walking down the street, and someone sees that you're you know looking kind of red um, from the sun, and gives you a parasol. It's just sort of one of those things that you you get what you need. Um, it just sort of shows up in in a wonderful way, and you get to talk to that person and interact with them. And they just wanted to give you something for no no reason other than they felt compelled to. And that's part of the preparation of going is finding something or finding a way in advance that you know you're going to be able to give. Is that right? Giving can be of your time. It can be volunteering. There's thousands of people that devote their their vacation from work to actually doing work on the playa. We've got Department of Public Works, Black Rock Rangers, Gate, Greeters, Department of Information. There's a radio station, Center Camp Cafe. All of these departments are run by volunteers who really enjoy giving the gift of their time and expertise. And then other people bring supplies for a bar or they'll bring dance lessons or they'll bring an object, you know, lip balm or sunscreen or band-aids or something that's really wonderful to receive at that moment. So um, tell us about the queer experience there. How's that, how has that changed over the years? Now, you've been there five years, and but you've been going there about nine and you're about ten. ten. Um, have you noticed a change there within those five or ten years? Because I, I have to tell you, when I first heard about it myself uh, quite some time ago, I'd heard about it sort of in the periphery, and I thought, eh, why would I want to go there? It, doesn't, it seems like this guy thing that, you know, but some guys, like the, the, the myth behind it is, oh, yeah, some guy had a fight with his girlfriend or lost a girlfriend, and so he burned the... The burned a man in effigy on the beach because that was supposed to represent the lover that she ran off with. I don't even know how much of that's true, but that's just the stuff I heard. And then I thought, well, you know, um, and then they go to the desert and shoot guns and, you know, light things on fire. So what's what's in that for me? <laughs> I said, that's the thing where the straight boys go. I don't, you know. I think the uh, radical inclusion, one of the ten principles of Burning Man, makes uh, – queer people be very comfortable on the playa uh, you can be yourself uh, no matter what shape you are uh, what color or gender so people will accept you the way you are so it makes uh, people feel comfortable and I think when they come back home to this reality they will tell people about their experience and they want to convince the guy on the grocery store the lady on the laundry room to uh, come to Burning Man and then it started to I think in 10 years like ago and now it changed a lot it's way more queer people at Burning Man and uh, the queer camps are growing and it's but doesn't really matter. I think people come like the way they are, no, no matter if they're queer or not. Like the, the radical inclusion makes everybody feel welcome, and I think that's the magic about it. Mm-hmm. You don't need to be in a neighborhood in order to be accepted. No matter where you are in the city, people will treat you as a human. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of mixed camps, certainly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you like yeah. for example the camp that I was at with Coco and uh, Morocco. Uh, there's at least uh, you know usually like a handful of, of queers at we're, that camp. We're which a fifty-fifty yeah, ratio. Yeah, fifty-fifty. And just there you go. Because we're lucky to have wonderful people, and and that defines the experience of wanting to camp with folks rather than than who they you know who they are in bed. Mm-hmm. So uh, we love having a, a mixed camp where we're not. Um, we're not tied to that. And frankly, Burning Man's very fluid. A lot of people kind of drop their labels at Burning Man and experiment and, you know, have fun with all that in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, that's one of the things I said I would ask before we actually started recording was, you know, is it true that the straight guys do put out and the the straight girls? (laughs) Because they're experimenting. They want to experience all life has to offer them. That's certainly the story I hear from some of my gay friends. Like, oh, yeah, the straight guys, you know, they want to try it out. They do drop their barriers quite a bit. And we do have people who I've traditionally identified as straight come into Beaverton intentionally to, to kind of experiment. And that's what we're definitely there for. And open up our arms and open up our very special dome called the Beaver Dome for them to come in and interact with other women and other, you know, queer folks and see see where they're at. And we have clit tail hours, which are Tuesday and Thursdays, so that women can come in and potentially find partners for our big play party. So we have a lot of uh, women come in and, and tell us that that was the first time that they'd ever had sex with a woman was at our camp, and that is just such an honor such an honor for us. Yeah, I bet it is. Yeah. Do you get lots of toasters? Um, you know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, uh, you, in the notes you sent me, you said that you encourage participation, inquiry, conversation, and self-reflection on what it, on what it means to be a beaver. Um, what And you also put on workshops. Your camp puts on workshops, right? We do. Uh, the majority of our workshops are sex-positive workshops, and then we do do some things like yoga and book club, and I did a life-drawing workshop once. But a lot of them are sex-positive and educational around, you know, female ejaculation and fisting and uh, how to – we did actually one for – geared towards straight men of how to really please your woman, mm-hmm. which was attended by over 100 men. Mm-hmm. And that was not a live demonstration. It was more of a um, panel discussion. Right. So we we have a lot of workshops that are very well attended and are pretty amazing. You're hearing a 2014 Out in the Bay conversation about Burning Man, about the queer happenings there and the art. Much of it's shown in the book Burning Man, Art on Fire with the third edition published in July. Now, I know I, we definitely want to talk a little bit more about the book, but one last question, and that's this whole thing about the gayberhood. Can you tell a little bit more about some of the other camps there, the, the, the men's camps, women's camps? Are there several of each? Beaverton's the only exclusively female-orientated, queer-orientated camp, like queer-female-orientated. There's a ton of gay men camps, I think like I've written down eleven already. Comfort and joy is kind of the big one. I th- yeah, I and that's right? a village, so they've got smaller camps within that village. And then there's just the seven thirty section is chock a block with these amazing camps. Since we've only got probably five minutes left or so, I um, want to talk more about the photographs in this book, um, Sydney and and Coco. Both of you. You talked about dust storms. Some of the, you know, when I look at these photos, I, it kind of makes me go, wow, yeah, I want to go back there. And yet, look, let's look at the cover photo, for example. Uh, you see a little bit of naked ass there on the top. With the, how, how are the publishers with that, by the way? Uh, fortunately, they only spotted it after we'd gone to proof stage, so it was too late to change it. We had to have a little, yeah, a little right saucy on. there. Yeah, it's but nothing, you know, it's nothing lewd. It's just, you know. It's, it's just very a little attractive bit of a, yeah, yeah, it's little nice. bottle. Um, but anyway, these, these, these folks are climbing. Uh, it looks like they're, like, you know, climbing Mount Everest because there's this, you know, whiteout on the bottom of the thing here and it almost looks like i mean i have a feeling that this must have this looks beautiful and like oh my god what a beautiful day but you as the photographer there or anybody's like oh god let's get up on this thing and out of this dust storm that's down below um how was it to photograph in those conditions and how much do you kind of use those um first of all what is this piece of art we're looking at 
this is called uh, Starseed. Uh, it's by Kate Roddenbush, one of our darlings at Burning Man, I'll call, a Burning Man darling. Um, Scott London took this picture, actually, and it was during a um, big storm. It was not just a dust storm, it was a, it was a storm itself. And it was hard to photograph this. Um, I was on the other side of the playa, and the camera, the lens, gets all dusty. It's really, you can ruin your, your gear easily, but um, it makes this beautiful effect. It's like it's priceless to have this picture taken. Mm-hmm. And do you have any like particular? I mean, this is pr- crazy. It's like asking to someone to choose their their favorite baby. Do you have any personal uh, favorite? Um, you know, photographs. This is this whole series on the temples is uh, amazing to me. And can you? Tell me a little bit about the Temple Burn. Tell our listeners about the Temple Burn, because that's the, the one year I went. That was the most profound thing for me. That people go to this temple and put mementos and remember past loves and hurts and everything they want to get rid of, I guess. The temple is the, the sacred space at Burning Man, and it's oh, it's located directly um, on the other side of the man from the city. And it's a beautiful tradition that was actually started by David Best, who's doing this year's temple. He's a wonderful artist up in Petaluma. But the temple is a gift to the community. And... Uh, what people do is they bring their memories, tributes, memorials, lost ideas, lost pets, lost friendships, and they they set they set their intentions about them in the temple. They write all over the temple and they bring these gorgeous um, art installations, and they leave them in the temple to be burned. And Burning Man ends on Sunday night when the temple is burned in complete silence, and you have 60,000 people all focused on their intentions and their memories, um, looking at this exquisite work of art that's been built by a whole group of people go up in flames. And it's both um, deeply cathartic and meaningful and painful, but also joyous because it's a release. And um, the temple is the sacred space of Burning Man. It's not religious, but it is a, a place of great meaning and power for a lot of people. And I'm just struck by with other pieces of art as well, but how much work goes into these. And you think, wow, all this work went into this, and they're going to burn it. And on the one hand, it seems crazy. But on the other hand, well, I don't know. What is the other hand? I mean, I don't know how to exactly describe it, but why don't you tell me? Well, what art, is the, what art, is... art is ephemeral. Life is ephemeral. And the point of burning art, some art, not all art at Burning Man is, is set aflame. Some is put back in the community. Like right here in San Francisco, we have beautiful Soma from the Flaming Lotus Girls on, on uh, Pier 14 right now. But the point of burning the art is to show that you make something for the process, not for the outcome. And you can remember a piece of art even after it's gone. So it's a very visceral, um, kind of primal thing to do, to, to set something aflame. But it's also um, it's also very exciting. There's nothing like seeing the man burn with 78,000 of your closest friends standing in a circle. It you, you feel like a cavewoman again. It's awesome. And I also was amazed. So there's all this burnt art and there's... You know, buildings and there's all this. The first I was amazed the first night I was there, it felt like there was so much neon. I kind of felt like, wow, it's like Las Vegas out in the middle of nowhere, but with no commercial aspect to it. I wasn't trying to get you to come in and throw money in their slot machines, but there was a lot of neon there. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know where else to go. We've, we're almost out of time, but I guess I should say, how could people find out more? First of all, about your book, where's it available? And how, you know, if they wanted it, you know, it's too late for this year because Burning Man is, you know, if you don't already have your tickets, you probably can't get them unless someone offers you one at the last minute, gifts you one. Um, and you've got a lot of preparation to do. But where can people find out, you know, for next year if they want to plan ahead? We are going to have a wonderful new website launching, BurningMan.org, because Burning Man is now a nonprofit organization, which is really exciting. And Burning Man is also year-round. So people can actually get involved, not just on the playa, but back here in San Francisco or wherever they're listening, by going to BurningMan.org and looking for their uh, local Burning Man groups. Uh, the book itself, which is Burning Man Art on Fire by Scott London, Sidney Earthall, and Jennifer Reiser, with an introduction from the founder, Larry Harvey, and a great piece by Will Chase and uh, Leo Villarreal, who did the Baylights, is in all kinds of local bookstores. We're very excited that it's uh, well represented in San Francisco, and it's also available online. And how can people find out about Camp Beaverton or the ga- the Gaberhood uh, boxing? <laughs> well, Camp Beaverton is uh, campbeaverton.org. You can find us online. And uh, the Gaberhood, well... You should find us on Plyer and we'll uh, see what you're into and I'll send you to the right camp. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay. I want to um, thank my guests, Jennifer Reiser and Sydney Ertal, writer and photographer respectively of Burning Man Art on Fire and Foxy, past mayor of Camp Beaverton, a Burning Man queer women's theme camp. You've just heard a conversation first aired in 2014. Though Burning Man continues to grow and evolve, much remains as it was then. The third edition of Burning Man Art on Fire was published in July 2023 with 150 new photographs. Learn more in the post for this episode on our website, outinthebay.org. Out in the Bay is entirely independent. Please chip in what you can to help keep queer voices coming your way at outinthebay.org, where you can also hear a slew of interviews with fascinating people. That's outinthebay.org. I'm Eric Jansen, a.k.a. Canella on the Playa, and I am out of time. Thanks for listening.